Welcome, birders. This is Ed Pullen, your host on the Bird Panther Podcast, where birders talk birding. While I'm home, I'm rested and ready to do the podcast episode I promised on my Antarctica trip. Antarctica, the southern part of the world, exciting. I've always wanted to go there. Crazy place. And I did it. So I'm back home and ready to talk a little bit about it. Rather than a play-by-play, day-by-day, bird-by-bird report, which you can find as a blog post on the Bird Patter Podcast uh, blog uh, under Ed's Birding Notes, I'm going to briefly outline the trip and then tell a bunch of stories about the, the expedition cruise, which I think will be a lot more interesting. It's a long ways to Ushuaia. Ushuaia is a city in the very southern part of Argentina on the northern end of the Beagle Channel. Uh, on the northern shore of the Beagle Channel, and uh, it's a pretty cool city. But to get there, I flew from SeaTac to Houston to Buenos Aires to Ushuaia with a change in airport in Buenos Aires, 36 hours, pretty exhausted when I got there, uh, and got in just in time to meet Alvaro's group. Alvaro Jaramillo leads Alvaro's Adventures as the principal in Alvaro's Adventures, and several different bird tour organizations put together a whole boat full of birders for this trip. So unlike a lot of uh, Antarctic expeditions, which might have some birders on it and might have an ornithologist on it, and maybe even someone to, to specifically point out birds, this was a, a, a dedicated birding trip. So pretty excited to get on that. Alvaro Jaramillo and Alvaro's Adventures put together about, give or take, 25 birds for the trip. The American Birding Association put together a group of birds from the trip. Rock Jumper, uh, the big birding tour company, put together a big group of birds from the trip and were the real organizers of the whole trip. And Oryx, which is an outdoor photography uh, branch of Rock Jumper, uh, had a number of photographers on the trip too. So it was really a trip dedicated to birding and bird photography, which was perfect for me. And I was really excited to be on it. I was excited to go in 2020 when it got canceled. And I was excited again in 20, or actually less excited in 2021, kind of hoping it wouldn't go and it didn't, uh, but excited this time when it finally got to go in 2022. Uh, so I got to, uh, got to Ushuaia and did two days of birding on land with Alvaro and his group. Uh, we went to Parque Nacional, Tierra del Fuego, uh, which is a pretty big national park right down at the very southern tip of Argentina. And uh, the next day we went up to uh, uh, Glacier Nacional, uh, uh, ski slope and hiking area, subalpine sort of area for some different birds there. Went to the dump to check out all the caracara species there and some other rafters and gulls. And then I finally got on the boat. It was a 19-day expedition cruise on the Ocean Diamond. The Ocean Diamond is a ship uh, that's run by Quark, uh, which is a Canadian-based uh, expedition cruise company. And it was really a very well uh run a cruise overall just superb nothing bad to say about quark i thought they did a great job with the cruise was really excited about it this is how the cruise went we took off from uh, ushuaia and went to the falkland islands about a day and a half of cruising to get to the falkland islands and got there and uh, spent a day and a half at the falkland islands uh three zodiac landings one in stanley two others and uh, went off from there to South Georgia 
It's about a two-day cruise, two-and-a-half-day cruise to get to South Georgia. Uh, spent three full days birding there with six Zodiac landings in South Georgia, went, which went extremely well. The weather was excellent. All six landings got to got to take place. They were That was almost unheard of, that uh, the conditions were good enough to land on all six of those. I missed all six of those, quarantined in my room with COVID. It was really a drag. Uh, more about that later. Uh, and from there, on to Antarctica. It's about two a two full day cruise. So we had three full day cruise to get to Antarctica from the South Georgia Islands. Uh, we had a, a really exciting ocean crossing there with good birding. Uh, saw the biggest iceberg in the world, A seventy six A. Again, more on that later. Uh, and spent a couple of days birding, two and a half days really birding around the Antarctic Peninsula. Made several landings there. Had some really good bird sightings, uh, and then came back to Ushuaia, crossing the Drake Passage. Drake Passage is renowned for its big seas and big weather, and we got to experience those seven-meter seas, crazy rocking boat, just fabulous crossing with exciting weather and exciting birds, and got back to Ushuaia safe and sound. From there, I took off late that afternoon to Buenos Aires, stayed overnight in Buenos Aires, and flew home. So that's the trip in a nutshell. Now I'm going to talk about some specific aspects of the trip that I hope you find a lot more interesting than just a bird-by-bird -bird description. I thought I would begin with just a, a talking a little bit about what's an expedition cruise and what was this cruise like? Well, to start out with, we were on the Ocean Diamond, which is an ocean... I think they call it an ice-hardened boat. It's not an icebreaker, but it's uh, able to withstand uh, pretty icy waters. It, it is, was 407 feet long, uh, 52 feet wide, uh, had a draft of 16 feet, has gigantic engines. It can cruise about 14 knots in open water. Uh, and it was a, a pretty good-sized expedition cruise ship, I thought, but kind of bigger than I get en envisioned it being. Uh, and it was pretty nice. It was the oldest boat in the Quark Expedition uh, group of boats, but it had been refinished, and it was quite nice. I was very pleased with the overall, just the overall feel of being on the boat. It felt solid. It felt well-appointed. I thought it was great. Uh, so basically, a day on the boat went something like this. I would wake up usually kind of early. The days are really long there. And so daylight came around four o'clock. And a lot of times I was up by 4.30 or five uh, and would try to get up on deck. Breakfast usually was seven or 7.30. It was a, buffet, a beautiful buffet breakfast. And even though I'm vegan, I really had no trouble with breakfast and lunch when I could get to the buffet. The food, there were plenty of decent choices to eat. I, I did well with feeding, uh, well with getting fed there. I was pretty happy about that. Uh, so I'd usually try to get up on deck for a while maybe a couple of hours even if I uh, had a chance to up on deck before breakfast, come back, uh, get my warm clothes off uh, and go to breakfast. This warm clothes thing, it was you know pretty cold when you're up on deck. So uh, the trick I thought was to uh, get dressed quickly and get up there before you just a bath of sweat from being dressed so warmly in the ship, which was pretty warm, uh, just getting from your cabin, uh, usually up two or three flights of stairs outdoors into the pretty cold, windy weather. Uh, so trying to get out before I got all hot uh, and would, would bird on deck for a while. Then we'd have breakfast. It was a buffet breakfast. Every meal would be met by Johnny, who was the uh, head of the, I, I think his job was to be head of the whole 
dining experience. And he was uh, uh, always super excited to see you. He'd say, welcome to breakfast. Come on in. It's just really fun to see Johnny. He'd uh, try to make your experience as good as he can make it. I would have breakfast. I'd usually spend you know, maybe half an hour having breakfast and, and then we'd get back on deck. Uh, in the mornings, usually there were two lectures, oftentimes two lectures during the morning, sometimes just one uh, by maybe the marine mammal guy or by uh, the uh, ornithologist or by the glaciologist or by the historian or the, by, by the photographer who talked about photography. They had a nice lecture series you could go to or not. Uh, I went to some, didn't go to others and would spend as much time as I could on deck between uh, breakfast and lunch. Lunch was usually 12.30, give or take. And again, it was a, a nice buffet lunch. Uh, they'd have some uh, fresh cooked food at a section of the buffet where they might have a stir fry or different things uh, and had a whole variety of choices. Again, I did just fine uh, finding vegan food, generally speaking, for lunch. It maybe got a little bit boring by the end of the trip because usually there were two or three choices uh, pretty much every lunch. Uh, and then in the afternoons, this is when we're cruising at sea. Again, be up on deck as much as possible. Again, they usually have a lecture uh, during the afternoon uh, and to spend as much time as I could on deck birding uh, and you know chatting with the other birders. And then at the end of the end of the afternoon, usually around five, five thirty, six o'clock, uh, they would have I think what they call a day summary and uh, a time to tell you what to expect tomorrow. Uh, and so usually would we pretty much, I went up almost all of those. Alvaro's group usually had a checklist review where he, he gave us a printed out checklist uh, for the trip. We go through what was seen for birds and marine mammals and that sort of thing for the day. And uh, they would go through three or four mini lectures about related things to the day, maybe something about the history, maybe something about the marine mammals, maybe something about the birds. Uh, two or three people give a, of the expedition cruise people would give a talk and then we would uh, have dinner dinner was usually at seven or seven thirty and it was usually an hour to an hour and a half or so experience you'd uh, have several courses it was uh, served on plates brought to you ordered uh, off the menu for me dinner was the least exciting meal usually as a vegan the choices were somewhat limited generally but i you know I didn't lose a lot of weight. I did just fine on this trip eating. So I was fairly happy overall. Uh, and then after dinner, again, some time on deck usually. It was still daylight uh, until 9.30 or 10, generally speaking. And at around 9 o'clock, they would usually have a checklist review for the whole ship. And I usually skip those because Alvaro's group had already done those ahead of time. Uh, and I'd try to be in bed by 9.30 or 10 and ready to go the next day. On days that there were expedition, there were Zodiacs, uh, uh, landings, uh, usually those would happen at eight or nine in the morning and sometimes again right after lunch. Uh, and Zodiac landings were super cool. And uh, they broke the whole ship up into four groups and rotated who went first. Uh, sometimes they were uh, they would split the landing up into a Zodiac cruise where half of the half of the passengers went on a ride around in the Zodiac to see icebergs and beaches and birds and different things. Uh, and uh, half went ashore and then they'd switch places. Uh, occasionally half went ashore and then came back and then the other half went ashore. And sometimes we could all go ashore. Uh, so it just depended on the, the capacity of the landing site and you know different things. So the landings were definitely a highlight of the trip. They were really fun. Uh, and enjoyed that and kind of 
repeat, rinse and repeat every day. It was uh, went on and on. So it was great. It was exhausting at times, uh, but we felt well taken care of. I felt safe the whole trip uh, and all overall went very well. So I was pretty happy with the general experience. Well, after talking about the boat, let's talk about the birders on the boat. There were about 170 paid guests on the boat and really everyone was a birder. Uh, to one degree or another, maybe two or three self-identified as spouse of birders, non-birders, but, but practically all birders. But they weren't all the same type of birders, didn't all have the same way of birding or everybody's different. Uh, and so I kind of lumped the birders in the boat into categories. I'm a family doctor and when I think about, uh, you know, things I tend to categorize them. It's just the way I think, you know, it's a vascular problem, a neoplastic problem, a metabolic problem, a nutritional problem, a traumatic problem. But what kind of problem is it? Well, I looked at birders on the boat in categories. Uh, and so there were a handful of people on the boat who were self-identified as non-birders. I won't really look at those. Uh, there were probably 20 or 25 birding photographers and nature photographers on the boat. Most of those came with the Oryx uh, group from Rock Jumper, and they seemed to be birders too. They were just more interested in photography. But of the rest of the people on the boat, there were what I thought about 40 or 50 that I would lump as hardcore birders. Uh, they weren't really photography nuts. They were very avid birders. They were out on deck as much as possible. They didn't miss an expedition uh, landing. They didn't they didn't uh, miss a chance to see a bird on deck to see a lecture or to go to a meal or hardly anything. Maybe go to a meal, but uh, they pretty much birded hardcore every minute that they could. Uh, and uh, that was one group of people on the boat. And I would probably generously put myself into that group if I'm going to be in a group. Uh, then there were uh, a bunch of people that a whole lot of people, maybe over half the birders on the boat, what I categorize is... Uh, uh, birding tourists. They use uh, birding tour groups as a way to get around the world and bird. Uh, a lot of these people are hardcore birders. They are very talented birders, but they pretty much do a lot of time on guided birding tours like this. They go on rock jumper tours or Alvaro Adventures tours or field guides or whatever tours, and they do a lot of birding tours. So they travel the world extensively and they do it as uh, as a member of a birding group. And that's super cool. There are people who've been on 35 Rock Jumper uh, birding guided tours. That's a lot of birding tours through Rock Jumper. Uh, there, Alvaro had what the, his, his group, you know, jokingly called his groupies. They pretty much sign up for every Alvaro uh, uh, trip that they can get on. Uh, and so there were, you know, a lot of uh, people who use uh, guided birding trips as their way to bird and, and travel. And then there were uh, a handful, uh, another handful who were just general adventure travelers, I would say. They, they do a lot of birding travel. They travel for hiking or uh, skiing or snorkeling or whatever. Uh, but they uh, really like uh, adventure nature, ecotourism travel. Uh, and they, you know, do birding that way too. And so that was maybe another 20 or 30 people on the boat. Uh, and then, uh, you know, there were maybe a handful who were just 
really want to see Antarctica, and this was how, the, how they got there, and birding was of a secondary importance. But pretty much a, a fabulous group of birders, really fun people on the group in the boat. I really enjoyed meeting them. I used dinners and, and meals as a chance to sit with different people, talk with as many people as I could. And, and some of the rest of the stories on this uh, podcast will be about some of the people on the boat. Well, of all my experiences on the boat, one of the more memorable and probably the weirdest was the very beginning of the trip. After getting on the boat and going through the safety briefings and everything, uh, we were ready to take off. But the wind was blowing too hard. Kind of crazily, the ship couldn't get away from the dock at Ushuaia because the wind was blowing so hard it just blew the ship up against the dock and the thrusters wouldn't get it away from the dock and they couldn't get going. Uh, so we're set to go about 5 o'clock in the evening and we just sat there and sat there and sat there. And the boat's kind of rocking a little in the wind uh, and we sat down to dinner. Uh, and so this was, it turns out, we didn't know, but this was the first meal on the first Antarctic cruise of the season on the Ocean Diamond. So there was all lots of new staff, a lot of people who hadn't really done their job formally. They'd been trained and they were severely chastised, it sounds like, to do exactly what they were taught. And so we sat down to dinner and things started at a snail's pace. Uh, you know, we, we got our orders, then we waited a while and we got our first serving, one person will get it and then the next person will get it. And it went really slowly. It was kind of strangely slow paced, but everybody didn't really know what to expect and we're sitting at the dock. So I'm sitting at a table, I think of about eight people, and I'm facing uh, towards the side of the ship looking right ahead of us are the, are the windows out, outside the dining room, and they are right at pier level. So I'm looking out the windows, through the windows, at the pier. And on the pier, there are buses driving by and machinery moving cargo around and vehicles going sideways. And of course, those vehicles going sideways are also going up and down as the waves rock the boat up and down. Uh, and uh, it kept looking like the boat was moving because a bus would go by real slowly. And when something's moving past your window and you're still, if you, you get the motion that sense that you're moving. So I felt like I was moving along, but I wasn't moving along. And I was seeing the same things over and over, and they're rocking up and down. And I was really worried about motion sickness on this boat. I'd taken my Maclazine. I'd had my motion sickness meds and everything. But I'm kind of feeling weird at this meal. I'm sitting there, and it's like, whoo, get the things. We're moving in? No, we're not moving in. We're moving in? We're not moving. We're rocking? We're not. It was very strange moving around. And meanwhile, a meal is going at a snail's pace. It took about three or three and a half hours to get through the first meal, the entire meal, uh, while we're docked at the pier, not going anywhere. It was just a weird experience, I have to say. Uh, and anyway, the crew severely apologized for the slow meal, said it would never happen again, told it was the first meal of the first uh, trip of the cruise season, the, the wait staff was just sort of getting the knack of everything, and they were trying really hard to make no mistakes, but when you're trying to do things perfectly, sometimes it's slower than doing things expediently. Anyway, the rest of the meals went much more smoothly and much cooler, and eventually we got off. It was just maybe 9.30 or 10 in the evening before we finally got off the pier, and a lot of us were, you know, super anxious during that meal. We knew that there were a couple of three species that the best time to see them was was in the Beagle Channel, and so we wanted to see our Magellanic diving petrel and our Magellanic penguins and different things that we were hoping to see in the in the Beagle Channel. And by the time we got up on deck, it was 
almost dark, and so we had little chance to see those that first day as we uh, headed out to sea. But that was kind of a weird experience of being stranded at the dock due to high winds uh, and watching the uh, machinery on the dock uh, go both sideways and up and down out the window. Well, on awakening, the first day at sea, for me it was pretty early, maybe 4 or 4.30 in the morning, uh, we got up on deck and it was really cool. So our first day at sea, I'm just so excited. I just can't believe it. I just can't wait to see what's out there. And sure enough, there are birds, uh, petrels. You know, petrels uh, are uh, cool birds. They're in the tube nose uh, group of birds that have the tubes on top of their uh, bill that they treat salt from, uh, and they are seabirds supreme. They spend their entire lives at sea except when they go to shore to breed uh, and are just some of my favorite birds. Well, anyway, there are lots of tube noses and petrels out there. Uh, but one of them that wasn't a petrel was the giant petrels. Uh, at the beginning of the trip, we only saw southern giant petrels, but southern and northern giant petrels are almost identical-looking birds uh, that differ in appearance really only in the color of the tip of their bill. It's a reddish in, in the northern giant petrels and greenish in the southern giant petrels, and it's very hard to see that without a photograph for me. Uh, and and anyway, these giant petrels are soaring around the boat. They pretty much for almost the whole trip, uh, there were giant petrels either circling the boat or trailing the boat or to be seen somewhere. I'd actually seen a couple of, a few of them from sure from Ushuaia in the Beagle uh, Canal before we even left. Uh, but giant petrels are cool birds. They're awkward, gommy looking things. Uh, they just are strange looking flying birds. They're big, the size of a small albatross. They look like they just could take on the world, and I think they kind of do. Uh, saw giant petrels. Saw white chin petrels. White chin petrels are one very cool bird. They're a big petrel. As petrels go, they're one of the, probably the biggest petrel we saw on the trip, uh, and they uh, they fly like a petrel. They uh, uh, do dynamic soaring over the ways, but in general, they seem to fly slowly. I think it's because they're bigger and heavier and cut through the wind better than a lot of the, the smaller petrels, but they seem to be in a little bit slow motion compared to some of the other uh, petrels, uh, and they're just rugged looking. They're all black. Uh, they have a white bill. It looks like kind of like a fulmar bill. It's, it looks like you can see the individual plates of the bill, uh, which is white, stuck together, little black, uh, you know, pen lines around each segment of the bill. And if you get a photograph or a really good look, it's just see a little tiny bit of white at the base of the bottom of the bill and their chin. So they call white chin petrels, but they could could be called slow flying great big black petrels and, and that might be more descriptive, but very cool birds. Uh, we saw uh, lots of uh, city shearwaters. I have a cool picture of like a flock of city shearwaters with one uh, white chin petrel uh, flying just above them. And it's fun to look at the difference of white chin petrel. It's just a bigger, uh, bulkier looking bird, thicker, a little bit broader wings, just very cool. Uh, and so that first day at sea was super exciting. Just chatting with other birders, getting out there, seeing how cold was it going to be? Not that cold. How rough were the waters? That day, not very rough. Uh, and was I going to get seasick? No, I didn't get seasick. So I was pretty excited. I spent almost the whole day on deck. Just had a great time. This is the first day uh, headed between the Beagle, Beagle Canal, which at the very earliest part of the morning we were just exiting, headed north up the coast of uh, 
uh, up the coast of Argentina before we headed east out to sea towards the Falkland Islands. So spent really the full day at sea and had a really good first day at sea. It was also our first day of kind of getting a feel of what the boat was like, going to breakfast, going to lunch, getting going through the buffet. And as a vegan, sort of seeing what the food was like, just fine, no problem at breakfast and lunch. I was, didn't have to worry about getting fed. I had brought peanut butter and some snack food in case I didn't get much to eat on the boat, but that wasn't the problem. So I had a really good first day at sea and kind of got my sea legs and had, had a fun experience. Well, after the day at sea, getting to the Falkland Islands, uh, we had two Zodiac landings on the first day at the Falklands. Very cool. Uh, Zodiac landings in themselves are cool. Uh, just learning how to get on the Zodiac boat, how to disembark when you get to shore, how to get dressed up, how to you know, stay warm without getting overheated and stay dry. Uh, one of the rules for being on a Zodiac on this uh, boat was you had to be completely waterproofed. You had to wear waterproof pants. You had to wear the muck boots they provided that went up to your knee, which were rubberized and waterproof. You had to wear a waterproof parka, either the expedition parka that they provided or a fully waterproof jacket of your own. Uh, and uh, so you were pretty much uh, bundled up to get on these boats. Uh, and we did two Zodiac landings the first day. The first Zodiac landing was at Carcass Island, a cool place, uh, which has a penguin colony, uh, two types of penguins, uh, Gentoo penguins and Magellanic penguins, uh, has a lot of skuas, uh, a lot of geese, uh, ruddy-headed geese and uh, uh, kelp geese and upland geese uh, and uh, a little freshwater pond that had a good number of ducks on it. We saw uh, yellow-billed pintails, yellow-billed uh, teal, uh, and we saw a silver teal, the only silver teal of the trip. Very, very cool bird. Uh, has a, a bright bill and just a cap on. It's a silverish looking bird. Very beautiful bird. Uh, and uh, so we walked into the island we saw oh i saw a uh an oyster catcher a magellanic oyster catcher there which was very cool uh, along with magellanic snipe uh which was really cool uh, so we had a lot of good birds really nice time walking in uh, and got in and out and, and got our first zodiac trick under our belt and went back had lunch on the boat and then did a second uh, zodiac landing that day on west point island west point island was another very cool island and that was had a fairly good walk maybe a mile or so uh, to a colony of black-browed albatross and southern rockhopper penguins very neat concept the penguins you think why do they go all the way up on those rocks to nest. It seems like a quite an ordeal that every, every time they want to get to feed in the water, they have to go way down these rocks, way back up, and they are hoppers. They literally are very proficient at jumping from one rock to the next and landing solidly and jumping. So they are appropriately called rockhopper penguins. But it turns out that they nest right in the middle of an albatross colony because the albatrosses uh, are, will have nothing to do with the skuas. The skuas uh, are parasitic birds. They will steal chicks, they will steal eggs from nests, uh, and the albatross had nothing to do with them. They basically kept them out of the colony. So the penguins, it was worth their while to get all the way up these rocks to nest right beside or right very close to uh, the albatrosses, which kept the skuas away, which gave their young a better chance of growing up big enough to avoid being eaten by a skua. Uh, so it was cool. So the 
The rockhopper penguins are doing their crazy braying. They've got these uh, yellowish uh, plumes off the head, and they put their head back and bray like a donkey and shake their plumes around all the time. And the and the albatrosses are on their nests, and their nests are incredibly cool. They're a mud nest uh, that they build up year after year. So a young albatross nesting, or one hadn't been in that nest for many years, might have a nest only three or four inches high with a mud cup. Uh, but an albatross has been using that nest year after year. It might be 12, 15, maybe 18 inches high mud, like a chimney uh, with a dome on the top that they had their nest on and sat on. So very interesting concept. So we got insanely close to these. The trails were right next to these colonies. Seemed like too close, but they've been doing it for a long time and the colonies seem to be doing great and not bothered by the people. So it all worked out uh, and had a nice time there and then went back, uh, saw some really fine pastoral birds there. Long-tailed uh, meadowlark is a really beautiful bird. You, I think a meadowlark is having a yellow breast. Well, these have red, a crimson red breast with a red spot in front of the eye, and just they're spectacular. Uh, and uh, we saw those. We saw uh, oh, all sorts of cool stuff. Oh, uh, grass uh, grass wrens and uh, yeah, grass wrens. Uh, also, uh, on the first stop back at Carcass Island, we saw two endemic uh, birds of the Falklands. We saw Cobb's wren and we saw uh, blackish syncloides. The syncloides is a bird that uh, also called tussock bird that literally is oblivious to people. It just hops along the beach, literally hopping right over your shoes. Very, very uh, uh, seemingly oblivious to humans in, in any way. Uh, and that's uh, largely because these birds grow up on islands with no land-based mammalian predators. Uh, they grew up without any reason for fear, and for that reason, they were really, really prone to uh, predation by rats and house cats, mice, rats, and house cats, all of which were introduced when the humans from Europe came. And uh, the, but those uh, animals have all been eradicated from the islands now, and the birds are making a huge comeback. Uh, so really fun to see some endemic species uh, along with just. Uh, fabulous birding. And another highlight of the stop at West Point Island was at the end of the day, we went to the uh, home of a family that lived on the island, and they have a business of providing tea to visitors to the island. So at the end of our trip, about four or five in the afternoon, we wandered into their home, and this woman had this fabulous spread of pastries, and two of them were vegan pastries. I couldn't believe it. I got my vegan dessert uh, hit for the whole trip. It was a really one time on the boat there was a, a vegan uh, cake that they served, but the rest of the time I had fresh fruit, which healthy and perfectly fine, but wasn't quite the same as brownies and lemon uh, tort, uh, which I had on West Point Island. So overall, a really fun uh, first day of two zodiacs on the boat. So I thought I would now talk about some of the people I met on the trip. There were some pretty cool people, both uh, guests and some of the, the leaders. Uh, one of the leaders was Peter Kastner. If you follow 
uh, world listers on eBird or other places, you know that Peter is a big-time world lister. He's the number one eBird lister and uh, number one or number two, depending on how you count or look at the things of anyone in the world for the most species of birds seen. Uh, He's somewhere over 9,700 species now and going strong. Uh, He found seven new species on this trip. He hadn't been to the Falklands yet, so Cobb's Wren was new for him uh, and got some uh, species around South Georgia Island uh, and just uh, so seven species for a guy who's got 9,700 species. That's a pretty good trip. Uh, and so he is, he was in the diplomatic service for a long time. And I had dinner once with one evening with he and his wife, Kimberly. Kimberly is a fascinating person in her own right. And really, I enjoyed talking with her too. She goes on quite a few of these trips with him uh, and is a pretty good birder in her own right. Uh, so really fun to get to know them. Peter has a photographic memory. Certainly helps if you're going to try to even remember 9,700 birds. Forget about recognize them, uh, and has been birding essentially his whole life. He has a brother who's also a birder, and so they bird together, older brother, so they bird together sometimes too. Uh, and Peter now is a part-time guide for rock jumper birding. And uh, so he basically uh, finds ways to lead trips to places he can get new lifers at, and so finds a way to finance his, uh, his habit of, uh, of chasing uh, new species. Uh, really fun guy to talk to, avid birder, and had quite a story. He gave a lecture on the on the boat about his uh, life of birding and a lot of the the some stories about along the way to 9,700 plus species. So, one of the fun people I met on the trip. Speaking of guides on the trip, there were some really, really interesting field guides on the trip. Le- you know, trip leaders. The Valentine brothers were really avid and excellent leaders. They were really good pelagic leaders. They were calling out birds, uh, getting people on things, just really fun and interesting to talk to. Glenn is a full-time field trip leader for field guides, and he is South African, as is his brother, uh, Keith, but he has uh, moved to Europe now, living with his wife and family there, and uh, Keith still lives in South Africa, and they are both... uh, were terrific. They were one of some of the better guides at calling out uh, calling out birds on the trip. Uh, George Armistad, uh, you may know George Armistad from uh, Alvaro and George's Life List uh, podcast. I'll put a link to that podcast. I had Alvaro as on as a uh, a guest one of my early shows. I'll put a link to that show in the podcast notes too. But George was another terrific guide and great storyteller. Just fun to be around on deck at, at, for a meal. Anytime you got to be around, George was always fun. And he was uh, one of the top, top pelagic bird uh, bird guides out on the deck. Of course, Alvaro uh, is terrific. Alvaro is just a wealth of knowledge. He gave a talk uh, about a new, probable new split from the Wilson Stone Petrel Complex uh, of a new bird that's almost certainly not part of the uh, regular Antarctic breeding Wilson Stone Petrels uh, that breeds, uh, I think, in Chile or Peru, I can't remember. But anyway, totally cool lecture about this new species that they're in the process of uh, trying to get recognized and and understood better. Ricardo Mattis is Alvaro's sidekick for uh, South American field trips. A terrific birder, uh, does research, uh, just a super fascinating guy, uh, and also an excellent uh, pelagic bird bird leader and onshore bird leader, too. He was really helpful on the pre-trip uh, in the pre-trip end, uh, some of the Zodiac trip landings that we took. Holly Faithful. I gotta love a name like Holly Faithful. Holly Faithful is a field guides leader, part-time field guides leader. She's from 
Great Britain, I believe, uh, and she was uh, you know fun to be around too. Also very good at calling out birds, excellent uh, excellent pelagic leader, and uh, one of the three tall blondes with English accents on the trip that everybody got names mixed up with. <laughs> Rose was the person who gave most of the uh, announcements on the trip, and and uh, everybody they were all tall blonde and had English accents, and everybody got them all mixed up on the whole trip. Uh, uh, they all sounded the same. <laughs> So that was kind of fun. I think half the men on the trip had a crush on their English accents. So that was pretty cool, too. So I thought I would switch to uh, some of my more memorable experiences on the boat. Well, I have to say, uh, possibly my most uh, memorable part of the trip. And, you know, it always seems like, you know, somehow bad memories stick in your brain, maybe more than good memories. Five days of COVID isolation in an expedition cruise ship is not fun. And I did that and uh, finished that five days of COVID isolation just as we left the South Georgia Islands. But one of the more memorable parts of the trip for me was the cruise from the South Georgia Islands to Antarctica. It's three solid days of cruising. And on the second day, we were all really excited because we were going to get to see the biggest iceberg in the world, A76A. Uh, really exciting. Uh, the big tabular icebergs uh, are labeled, given names, uh, based on first which quadrant of the Antarctic continent that they break off from, the A, B, C, or D quadrant, and uh, by the number of in order since the satellite age, which iceberg it is. Uh, so this was from the A quadrant, the Ross Ice Shelf, uh, and it was a 76 major tabular iceberg to break off since satellites have been numbering them. Uh, and so it was A76, and you may have heard in the news about this iceberg. It broke off about a year ago. I think it was November 2021 uh, when this broke off. It was big news because it was it's was gigantic. Well, it's still gigantic, and we only saw the largest remaining fragment of it there. I guess it broke into three big parts, and so the biggest one was A, so it was A76A, and it's currently the largest iceberg in the world, something like 125 kilometers long and 25 kilometers wide and 30 meters above the sea and maybe several, several hundred meters deep. Uh, just an awesomely big iceberg. Uh, and we're all excited to see it. So we're cruising along on the second day and fog has set in. In the morning we get up and you can barely see off the boat. You go out to try to bird and you couldn't see a thing. It was just dense fog. So we tried for a while and we just kind of gave up. And I sort of sat around and well, I might, I might have listened to a lecture or two or something, but it wasn't much birding going on that morning. Uh, but everyone was watching with this iceberg, and eventually around midday, the fog started to clear, and we could see the iceberg, but it was really far off and barely could see it in the fog, and then it just cleared. Fog cleared up completely, and it was beautiful. This iceberg is awesome. Uh, birds around it, fabulous numbers of birds. Uh, it was really cool. I, I guess that krill that uh, you know, live in salt water, don't do well in fresh water. And the water right next to this iceberg, which is melting, has considerably less salinity than the regular ocean water. And a lot of krill are either sick or dying. Uh, and so uh, they are being gobbled up by seabirds, especially prions, just gigantic gigantic flocks of prions around this iceberg, um, almost all Antarctic prions, is what the ones we could name were Antarctic prions, and blue petrels, which are kind of in the prion family. Uh, and so we had hundreds of thousands of prions, just awesome numbers, uh, and uh, lots of other birds too. So it was just a fabulous day and just beautiful views and awesome. It was three or four hours we cruised by this, uh, this iceberg. It was just 
fabulous, super memorable. And then we continued on, and on the very end of that leg of the journey, just as we got to Antarctica, the Antarctic Peninsula, we're going into the Weddell Sea. The Weddell Sea is typically ice-filled at this time of year in in, uh, November. It's a Typically, you can't get in very far. But we were going in as best we could, hoping to see an immature emperor penguin. That was the, there were eight possible species of penguins we could see on this trip. An emperor was the going to be the least likely to be seen. We we're going to have to be really lucky. It was probably going to be an immature pulled out on an ice floe. We were just hoping for that. But as we get to the Weddell Sea, it was just really strange. The ice had seemed to part for us. I think the wind had blown it all off to one side or something, and there just wasn't much ice. And so we just cruising on in. It's like 6 o'clock at night, 7 o'clock at night, 8 o'clock at night. We're just cruising on into the Weddell Sea and making progress. And it's getting icier and icier. We're kind of maneuvering around icebergs and pushing aside a little uh, sea ice here and there. But we keep on going. We keep on going. We keep on going. But I'm, you know, I'm getting tired. It's only my third day after getting out of COVID isolation. My endurance is not very good. And I'm up on deck for several hours looking through this ice and at 8 o'clock rolls around, I'm just barely able to stay upright. And 8.30, quarter of 9, I just can't do it anymore. I go back to my room, I go to bed, and I just get in bed when the call goes out that they've got emperor penguins on the ice floe. So I grab my clothes and get dressed and go back up on deck, as did everyone else. Uh, and we're all crowded up on deck, just in awe of these two adult emperor penguins. They're, when we first saw them, a long ways, maybe half a mile or a mile away, a long ways off. We kept getting closer and closer, and inching through the ice. We kept within three or 400 meters of these birds. It's fading light at night, so it's pretty hard to get good photographs, but some people did okay with that. But still, awesome to see these penguins. They are just big, beautiful penguins, really cool. We're just all in awe. We're just standing there, awed by the thought, and all of a sudden, two Antarctic petrels just come bombing at the boat really close, just zipping right overhead, several passes over the boat. And Antarctic petrel is one of the other most desired birds on the trip. They are a very southern breeding bird, one of the southernmost breeding birds along with emperor penguin, uh, and uh, are sometimes not seen on the trip, are usually seen in very small numbers, and usually not seen well. And so the, the getting great looks at Antarctic petrel was just a super bonus and that it happened at the same time we were looking at the emperor penguins just made for a magical moment fading light beautiful birds just screaming overhead you know a lot of us have been hoping we'd be able to identify an Antarctic petrel if we saw one at least at my skill level I was hoping I could if you look at photographs they kind of look like a cape petrel we've been seeing hundreds of cape petrels but they were shaped a little different but in reality they're bigger they're longer winged, faster flying, fabulously act, you know, they seem like a beast of a petrel. They just go zooming overhead, really cool birds. So that was super fun to see. Uh, And uh, so, tick and tick. I I had actually, we had seen a couple of Antarctic petrels earlier, far less uh, excellent views than that, but still uh, super cool to get that bird in such beautiful views. And at the same time as the emperor penguin made for a special, special treat. Well, Antarctica is everything I expected and more than I expected and not at all like I expected. It was just crazy. Antarctica is a big continent. It's the fifth largest continent, larger than Europe, larger than Australia. It's a big place. And we were only on the Antarctic Peninsula. A friend of mine said, oh, so you went to the South Pole. 
I was nowhere near the South Pole. I was 3,000 kilometers from the South Pole. Antarctica is a big place, and it is a place that no one lives. It has no permanent residence. There are research stations. There are people there all year round these days, but nobody lives there. No country owns it. Uh, it's it's governed uh, by a scientific agreement. Uh, it's just a fabulous, fabulous place. And it has mountains. I, I knew it was going to have some mountains, but I didn't know there'd be so many beautiful mountains and beautiful glaciers. And icebergs are so cool. I mean, icebergs are every shape, every size, from the great giant tabular iceberg A76A to little tiny icebergs that look the shape of every you know children's toy in the world to slushy ice all over the place to big beautiful icebergs with fabulous blue color it was a spectacular crazy place uh, and I have to say that some of my best memories are just of the awe of Antarctica it is wonderful. We made several zodiac landings there, saw some penguin colonies. It was just fabulous. But really, just the size and awe and beauty of Antarctica were what amazed me the most. In talking to the zodiac guides, uh, the, the expedition guides, it is quite different at different times of year. We were there in the early summer, late spring really. We were the first uh, expedition cruise for, for Quark to go out this year, and uh, it is still very clean. Uh, the landings where you go where there are a lot of seals and a lot of penguins, I guess by later in the season can just be guano covered, kind of ugly messes. Uh, but it was very clean. Certainly the, the penguin highways where they walked to their colonies were covered with guano. And there were, uh, you know, discolored areas from penguin colonies. But overall, it was clean and beautiful and crisp white everywhere and just spectacular. And so the awe of it, the penguin colonies. They were big. There were thousands and thousands of penguins at the colonies I saw, and I didn't get onto South Georgia Island with the extremely large king penguin colonies. So uh, they were just incredible. Uh, we saw things like Wilson storm petrels flying to their roosting sites way up on the cliffs. Uh, we saw Cape petrels doing the same. Uh, we saw uh, skuas, both South Polish skuas and brown skuas, uh, just uh, which are big, awesome birds. We saw them by the dozens. Uh, it was just crazy. We saw penguins, uh, you know, especially like chinstrap penguins, carrying little pebbles. They have to carry uh, pebbles to make a nest because they need to get their nest up off the ground so that if there's a melt and water runs under their egg, it won't you know, freeze their egg because uh, they only have just a brood patch and uh, have to keep their egg from freezing there, uh, and so they have to get their egg up off the ground. So uh, the penguins carry little pebbles to create a nest. So it, all sorts of awesome, awesome stuff. The big miss for me on this trip uh, was leopard seal. I did not get to see a leopard seal. There were really very, very few sightings, and the only ones were at great distance, and I didn't happen to get on, get on any of those. Uh, but just a really cool place. Some of the Zodiac cruises were just inching in and around ice flows and icebergs and seeing shipwrecks. It was just a fabulous, fabulous, awesome place. So I'm not going to go into all the birds of Antarctica. You can read about those lots of places. Uh, but it was a place of ice and awe. So I have to say Antarctica was pretty damn cool. 
And I'm going to wrap up this podcast by talking about the Drake Passage. The Drake Passage is famous for big weather. Uh, and we did the great Drake Passage at the very end of the trip. We left the South Georgia, uh, we, excuse me, left the Shetland Islands and headed out into the Drake Passage and spent two days coming back. And it was big seas, seven meter swells uh, with 50 to 60 mile an hour sustained winds at time. Uh, and the, the whole ship uh, was tilted to the side. The winds there go from west to east. They just circle the globe going west to east all the time. Uh, and they go from mile to really, really, really big winds. And we had big winds, but not uh, epic winds, I'm told. Uh, but they were as big as I'd want to be in the seas with. Uh, the boat was tilted about, I thought, about 10 to 15 degrees all of the time because of the wind blowing against the side of the ship. Uh, so you were walking on an uneven surface whenever you went anywhere. And that varied with the swells. We were just crashing through the swells for the whole two days. And it was really crazy wild seas. They closed the bow of the ship down, closed the side of the ship down. So the only place you could get outside was on the stern. Uh, but there were several uh, layers, several levels of the ship you could get on, plenty of space for everyone who wanted to be out. Uh, and there were quite a few people out most of the time. Uh, probably the easiest place to go out was outside the bar on the fourth level. They had some seats there, but it was just barely above the water, and, you know, maybe 10, 15 feet above the water. It was kind of loud and not, for me, the most pleasant place to stand. I like to be on the seventh deck uh, where uh, you could get a little more purchase on things. You were just behind the bulk of the boat uh, so you'd be out of the wind and had good viewing. And it was mostly viewing of the sea. There was certainly the giant albatrosses, which, by the way, are awesome. Uh, and you, once you've seen them, you, you'll not mistake the 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 big, big albatross, the wandering albatross and the royal albatross from the smaller ones. They are just awesome. They kind of cruise through the air, never flapping, and their change of positions from when they go from flying flat to the water to arcing up is just slow and lumbering compared to the other albatrosses, which is much quicker moving. Anyway, they are super awesome. just want to mention one other thing about the Drake Passage. You know, we had showers in our cabins, uh, and the showers uh, sloped down to a, to a great that the water drained through. Well, that worked great as long as the boat was flat. Uh, but when the boats tilted about 10 degrees, and we were on the windward side of the boat, so the water was tilted to basically go right down into the grate, but it was tilted so much as one right out of the grate and right under the bathroom, and it would have gone right under the cabin if we'd taken a shower. So we would sort of wait until we the boat turned in the right direction, uh, or the wind changed in the right direction, so it was tilted uh, so that the water ran against a wall and then sloshed down into the grate. So we learned quickly during the cruise when to take our showers when the boat was tilted in the right direction. I thought that was pretty cool. Anyway, I'm going to wrap up here. Uh, anyone who wants to know more about this uh, cruise, I wrote up a, a tripper Report in my blog. I'll put a link to that. It's under Ed's Birding Notes on the Bird Banter uh, website. Uh, and I also will put a link to uh, a couple of other things. One, Nate Swick uh, and the ABA podcast did a nice episode on the trip recently. I'll put a link to that. Uh, and also, uh, I took a bunch of pictures. I'll put a link to my Flickr, uh, Flickr album uh, down below on the podcast notes and on the uh, blog post about this episode. So thanks for listening. And until next time, good birding and good day. <laughs>